Turn to Daniel chapter 9. I always um, marvel at the providence of God in our studies, uh, just the way that He orders the timing of when we arrive at certain passages. I was planning that we would go in a different direction this week, because that's what you're supposed to do for Easter. And uh, then we got hung up on Daniel's prayer last week, and we didn't have time to get to this last section in Daniel. So here we are, and though it might not seem like it at first, I think this is really a great passage for Easter. Uh, Follow as I read Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and verses uh, 20 through 27. Daniel 9, 1 through 3, 20 to 27. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Verse 20, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. (coughs) Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war." Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, Uh, so remember that Daniel was taken into exile as a young man. Here he is as an old man, having spent the majority of his life in exile in Babylon. He was reading from God's Word in the book of Jeremiah, uh, likely verses, or chapters 25 and 29 as we know it. He didn't have chapters. Uh, it was just a scroll with the Word from Jeremiah. But um, in the, our divisions of the text, 25 and 29 are where these prophecies are found. And he discovered there promises that God would topple Babylon and that God would rescue his people from Babylon and take them back to the Holy Land. This was incredible news for uh, Daniel and for God's people. He had longed for this 
for his entire life. He prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem, which, what was the significance of Jerusalem? Well, that's where the temple was. That's where they worshipped God. Remember at that time, under the Old Covenant, the worship of God was bound to a particular space uh, where they would meet in the temple and God would meet them in the Holy of Holies and the high priest is the only one that could go back there and all of that. Well, when they're taken out of exile, you know, they're in their mind, we're removed from God. And we're removed from worship of God. So he longed to go back to be restored to the Holy Land. And he longed for that every day throughout this 70 years of exile. And in Jeremiah's prophecy, Daniel discovers that that very thing is upon him. The people of God are going to go back home. Because he's reading this, as it says in verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede, which means that Babylon has been toppled. Babylon was just toppled by Darius. And the Medo-Persians are now in power. And the other part that's connected to that is they're going home. So he's this is like the greatest gospel he could have imagined at the time that he's discovering in God's Word. And in light of this, Daniel's absolutely undone. I think in a um, burning bush kind of way, like holy ground kind of way, where he just, God is so near, and this is so overwhelmingly good, he's just, all he can do is bow in worship, and he's, it's a prayer of repentance and faith, confession of sin, and faith in God's promises, uh, one of the uh, best models of prayer in the Scriptures, verses 4-19. through 19. In response to his prayer, uh, the angel Gabriel is sent to Daniel, because we might think, like, did he not realize like this is really good news because of his response? He's just broken in, in this situation. But the angel Gabriel comes... And we see, especially in verse 23, he assures him that this is good. You're loved, right? This is about the love of God, the faithfulness of God. And um, in light of the assurance that he's given, he's then told to pay attention to this vision, which we find in verses 24 and 27. Now, as I said last week, this little passage, these four verses... Uh, would give any other four-verse passage in the Bible a run for its money in terms of how much ink has been spilled to try to interpret it and understand it. Uh, One commentator has called the interpretation of this passage a dismal swamp. Four little verses, who knows how many volumes um, have been written. If you Google it, I told you to last week, maybe you did, but you'll find all sorts of charts and graphs Lots and lots of articles and uh, papers, many coming from points of view, frankly, that couldn't be more different. And so it can be kind of confusing, and it's a a swamp. So on the one hand, I want to be careful not to act like this is just easy. This is not easy. If it were easy, uh, the church wouldn't be all over the board. And I understand why there's some confusion and, you know, the 7 and the 62 and the 7 and what in the world is going on. But I do think there is an interpretation that makes the most sense in light of all that we have learned up to this point um, and, you know, that we can derive from this passage. So there are lots of variations, but there are really three general options uh, that you have. Number one, some think that this points to Antiochus Epiphanes. We talked about him in chapter 8. Uh, there's good reason to believe he is the wicked little horn that reaps great destruction in chapter 8. And some people see continuity here. He was in the uh, like middle of the 100s uh, B.C. 
Now, many think, the second point of view, many think this passage points us to the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago and then points us to events at the end of time, like still future for us, end of time, prophecy. And that's a a major point of view that you're likely to find in the charts and graphs and, and all of that. And then the third major point of view would be there are those that believe that this passage is pointing us to the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago, the completion of His sacrificial work, and then the destruction of Jerusalem that followed in 70 AD, which was a result of the Jews' rejection of Christ. Um, I, I have a book, I'm going to quote from Sinclair Ferguson in a little while, but I follow him and many other commentators that, uh, in thinking that the third way is the way that we should understand this passage that verses 24 to 27 are pointing to the first coming of Christ 2,000 years ago in His life and ministry, the completion of His sacrificial work in His life, death, and resurrection, and then the destruction of Jerusalem that followed that in 70 AD as a result of the Jews rejecting Him. Now, the, the time frame involved um, in the vision is 70 weeks, it says, or literally in Hebrew, 77s. Um, this is where the charts are busted out, and you know. But the problem is, no one really knows where to start exactly. Like, what? Where should we start? And then there's a lot of discussion: is this literal weeks or is this figurative? And so you get a lot of variation in the charts and graphs on that, because seven is a biblical number of completion, not necessarily meant to be taken literally in this sense. People are all over the board. I'm going to handle it the way that I've handled similar passages, and it might be a bit of a letdown to you, but. Um, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the numbers. I think they're a distraction, really, from what we can find uh, that is clear in the text. And what we want to do is, is get a hold of what we can get a hold of and work out from there and see if we can't get a, a grip on an understanding. So what is clear? For example, verse 24, if you look at that, it tells us at the end of this 77s period, whatever that means, there are six things that will have happened. Number one, transgression will be finished. Number two, sin will be brought to an end. Number three, iniquity will have been atoned for. Now, I think these three things are just um, talking generally about the same thing in the Hebrew way of emphasis, repeating to emphasize what's coming, um, putting an end to sin, forgiveness of sins, you know, atonement for sins. Uh, the fourth thing that we see is everlasting righteousness will have been ushered in. Number five, vision and prophecy will have been sealed up. And number six, the most holy will have been anointed. Some translations say the most holy place, or you might have a note in your Bible that says the most holy one. But the idea is the most holy anointed. So, what does all that sound like to you? Jesus. You can do the Sunday school thing and like just say Jesus and it's probably... (laughs) It's probably right. In Christ, transgression was finished. Sin was brought to an end for His people. Our iniquities were paid in full. As uh, we know, you know, on the His last words, among them on the cross, it is finished. What was finished? Not He was finished. He was not finished. But sin was finished. He paid it in full. And that's what He meant. Everlasting righteousness was brought in in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, the gospel, you know, Paul says in Romans, it is the righteousness of God. The gospel is the everlasting righteousness of Christ 
that is credited to us so that we are right with God. Right? That, I mean, we're going to explain that a little bit more. But everlasting righteousness being ushered in, that's, that's the Gospel. That's uh, what Jesus has done. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled all of God's law, proving that He alone is the only one who is everlastingly righteous. What is righteousness? Well, keeping the law. And um, He alone has done that. And God determined beforehand that this was not something that He was going to keep, but this was so that He would give this gift of righteousness to others. Chris, do you know if uh, the uh, modern Jewish perspective on interpretation, is it similar that they think that it's a Messianic prophecy? Do you have any idea on that? I don't. I, I didn't come across that, so I don't know. Um, good question. But... Uh, um, so, on the cross, Jesus put an end to our sin, and He took our unrighteousness on Himself. He rose from the grave for our justification, and that means uh, putting us right with God. So, whoever would believe in Christ, because our sin was credited to Him, His righteousness is credited to us. That's the Gospel. Everlasting righteousness coming in. And then it says, vision and prophecy are sealed up. Well, what, how, is that, how did Jesus seal up vision and prophecy? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Well, I mean, you see throughout the Gospels all these different things that happen that says, and this was done to fulfill the prophecy. So that's, I mean, that's speaking to the prophecy part. As far as the vision, I don't, I don't know. But you see numerous things where it says, this happened and it happened to fulfill the prophecy. And when you go back and yeah. see it in the Old Testament where it talks about it. It has to do, that's great. I mean, but it has to do, this is the way God spoke to his people, right? How has God been speaking to Daniel throughout this book? Through visions and prophecies. And, um, you know, Hebrews 1 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. You know, the idea there is Jesus is the last word from God. Um, he was giving a word to his people through the prophets, through visions. But ultimately, He has spoken through His Son. Um, the one to whom, to Andy's point, all the visions and prophecies were, were pointing us. And then the last one, the last thing that's mentioned in verse 24 is that the Most Holy was anointed. The Christ or Messiah literally means Holy One, um, Anointed One. So, um, you know, verse 24 is incredibly hopeful. Now, Daniel didn't have any idea of what we just talked about of the fulfillment. But he did have categories for all of these things. Sin, atonement. Remember in Israel they had the Day of Atonement and that was the best day of the year where the sins of the people are, you know, uh, the high priest goes in and and atones for the sin of the people. Um, And righteousness. I mean, he understood these concepts and what he's seeing is sin is going to be done. Righteousness is going to be everlasting. So while he can't piece it together quite like we can, he can still wonder with great hopefulness at what this is saying. Um, and think about, I mean, you know, he's just poured out his heart in confession of sin and faith to God. And he's hearing that sin will be put to an end. You know, he's very aware of his sin in this prayer. And hey, remember, you're loved. That's what this is all about. So pay attention to this vision. And the first part of it is sin will be done. That's very hopeful. 
And, you know, for Daniel, could there be something better than God's visions and prophets? I mean, that's all he knows. Now, he is a prophet. I mean, he's being given um, the, the Word of God, but he's being spoken to via visions, and it's like, this is going to be done. Maybe he panics a minute, and like, does this mean God's not going to talk to us? But wait, it's, it's right here in the middle of sin being dealt with and done with and righteousness being ushered in, the Holy One being anointed. I mean, this is good, whatever this is, but he just he probably can't imagine it. What could be better than that? Well, it would be God coming Himself, right? Jesus Christ, God in flesh. The Holy One who put an end to His people's sin and gave everlasting righteousness instead. So, even though Daniel can't imagine the full extent of what this would mean, um, he is able to wonder at how good this is because it really is the Gospel in seed form. I mean, these are all the components of the Gospel in seed form. But then we get to verses 25 to 27, and they get very dark, frankly, and that's where the, vi- the vision ends. Um, now, again, some try not to get caught up in the 7 and the 62 and the 7, and just try to focus on what's going to happen in this period. Verse 25, the going out of the Word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and the coming of an anointed one, a prince, a reference to a king or leader. And Jerusalem will be rebuilt, though in a troubled time. So there's going to be a ruler that oversees this rebuilding of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be rebuilt, though it says in the text, in a troubled time. Now, this is probably a reference to Cyrus, who's the one that, as the Persian king, writes the edict to send the Jews back um, to their homeland and, you know, commission. That's what Ezra and Nehemiah are about. And it's about the rebuilding. Um, So it's probably what's being referred to here. But that was a very hopeful thing. They're going back to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to rebuild the city that was destroyed at the beginning of this exile. When Nebuchadnezzar came, captured the city, took the people into exile. Verse 26. Uh, then an anointed one, a king or ruler, will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the next prince or ruler will destroy the city and sanctuary. That is, destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. There will be war and desolations, the text says. Verse 27, this new king who destroys the temple, destroys the city, Uh, will make a strong covenant with many. He will put an end to sacrifices and offerings and abominations will come that bring desolation to the holy city until that desolator is destroyed, that wicked king that brought the desolations. Now, this is the part where many point to Antiochus Epiphanes because we talked in chapter 8 about how wicked he was. There was the part where he offered a pig on the altar and he stopped sacrifices for a couple years and... Um, But I think it's more likely that it points to the Roman emperor Titus. Uh, Titus destroyed Jerusalem, including the Holy Temple in 70 AD. In fact, I was just in Rome. If you go to Rome, there's a huge arch, uh, the Arch of Titus, because when these emperors would conquer foreign lands, they would build an arch to commemorate their victory. And inside the arch, there's um, one of the things you can see is like a menorah and just all the Jews, um, like war-like scene carved in this big marble arch. So, verses um, 28 
25 to 27 teach the rebuilding of Jerusalem from the destruction that was brought about by Nebuchadnezzar. But this passage also teaches that it would one day be destroyed again. Now, remember, what is the point of apocalyptic literature? That's what this is. Apocalyptic literature which communicates a message uh, via symbols and signs and apocalyptic language. Does anybody remember the main point of it? Encouragement. Light. Strength. To give God's people hope. Now, how in the world could this be encouraging to Daniel? I mean, he has longed his entire life to go back to Jerusalem. And he's just found out that he's going to go back, which is incredible. And he's just found out that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, including the temple being restored, which will, that means that God's people will be restored to the right worship of God, which is even more incredible. And then there's this bit about sin coming to an end and everlasting righteousness being brought in, which is too much for him to imagine, but it's still incredible. But then the vision comes that while Jerusalem will be rebuilt, it will be destroyed again. Sacrifices and offerings will cease in the temple because the temple will be made desolate again. A wicked prince will come that will destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem just like the terrible events that started this whole thing. How could that encourage Daniel? Well, I think what's going on here is God is getting Daniel to look beyond the temple and beyond Jerusalem. Those were the greatest things in Daniel's imagination. Those were the greatest blessings that he could have ever imagined for God's people. But those were not the greatest blessings that God had prepared for His people, were they? The holy temple in God's holy city, in His holy nation, they were all a foreshadowing of even greater realities that would come. Greater reality that's mentioned in verse 24. But in order to bring in this new and better reality, God was going to do away with the old. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD marked the end of a long period of redemptive history, but it also marked the beginning of a new one. It was the great transition from life in Jerusalem to God sending His light to the nations. That was prophesied all throughout the prophets. And that was something that God was always going to do. And, and Israel was always the scaffolding, and the scaffolding was always going to come down because there was an even greater ministry that was about to happen in Christ to the nations. All that was in Israel was prefiguring Jesus, who is the true and better Israel. They did not keep the law. He did. They did not earn everlasting righteousness. He did. They were not the ones that took God's blessing to the nations. He is. And so what's happening here is God is getting Daniel to look beyond the greatest blessings he can imagine because there's something even greater, someone even greater that is coming. But, in order to bring in the greater, he would do away with the old. They were pointing us to 
All of those things. I mean, the sacrifices in Israel were pointing us to the true and better sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lambs that were sacrificed in Israel never took away sins. They, they were temporary. They were, there was grace involved and they were the way that God had permitted for His people to keep fellowship with Him. But they did not have the power to take away sin because in order to do that, you had to have truly... You really needed God's blood. I mean... You needed divine blood. You needed holy, righteous blood. He's the greatest offering, Jesus is, to God that the world has ever known. And there's a new temple. The old one pointed us to the new one. We're a part of it, as is taught in Ephesians 2. I'm not going to go through it, but it's a temple that's not made by human hands. It says Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the piece without which it does not get built. The apostles and prophets are the foundation. And we are the stones. People from every nation, from every tribe and tongue and people group, Christians all over the world, um, built into a temple that is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. There is a greater sacrifice than the sacrifices of Israel. There is a greater temple than the temple in Jerusalem. There is a greater nation than the nation of Israel. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. You are God's chosen Race, his holy priesthood, his royal nation, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. Speaking to Christians, we are the Christian nation that spans all nations. The nation of Israel was simply pointing us to that. Um, Listen to Sinclair Ferguson about this, page 188. Well, you don't care what page it is, that's just for me. If this is the correct interpretation, it is not too difficult to see what it was that heaven was so anxious to communicate to Daniel, its representative on earth. It was right that he should long to see the people delivered from captivity. It was right that he should long to see Jerusalem rebuilt and the temple worship reinstituted. Yet the Lord wanted Daniel to see beyond these things to what they foreshadowed, however painful that might be. God's ultimate purpose was not a temple made with his hands and a holy place entered but once each year. His son was the place in which men were to approach God. His sacrifice, his sacrifice was the one which would bring forgiveness. Then if men still clung to the shadows and symbols of the old order, the things in Israel, rejecting what they symbolized, the greater reality in Christ, there was only one terrible prospect, judgment and destruction of the most terrible kind, which is symbolized in the destruction of Jerusalem. And the same is true for us. Um, God would not have us stop our focus on the blessings that He gives us, though we're tempted. Think about what are the greatest blessings in your life. The greatest blessings you can imagine. If you're in Sunday school, you know you're supposed to say spiritual things. But I mean, if you're just being, you know, what are the things that you cherish the most in your life? Uh, For Daniel, it was the Holy Temple and God's Holy Nation and God's holy people. But God was giving him something to look... He wanted him to look beyond that. Well, what is it for us? Is it family? You know, I hear people say a lot, uh, family's everything. I'm like, it's not everything. Everything? It's not everything. But it is a foreshadowing of an even greater reality. There is something very significant there that we can learn. The family of God for all of eternity. What about marriage? Marriage is not everything. But it is a foreshadowing of an even greater reality. Jesus' marriage to His bride, His covenant with His people for all eternity. 
Is it work? Maybe, maybe you wouldn't say that, but you know, work is a blessing. It's a gift, but it's not everything. Um, all of the gifts that we have point us to the giver. Is it an earthly inheritance? You know, everything we have in this life is perishable. But in heaven, there's an inheritance that's being kept for us that's imperishable. God would have us look through all of the blessings that He gives us, including this church. Because the church temporal, you know, the church on earth, points us to the even greater reality of the church universal. All of God's people gathered before the throne in heaven where there is no more sin and no more pain and no more death. Um, He would have us look through all of the blessings to Christ, the one in whom we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's incredible to think that we are living right now in a reality that Daniel could have never imagined. Because we see these things because they've been revealed to us. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life, fulfilling God's law, proving that He's the one that ushers in this everlasting righteousness. On the cross, Jesus put our sin to its end. It is finished. Your sins are forgiven. Even the ones that nag you in the middle of the night. Even the ones that you can't shake fighting. You just have to keep fighting because they won't go away. And He rose from the grave for our justification, which means He rose to prove that His payment was sufficient and to bring us back to God, to make us right with God, to bring us into God's family. Because our sin was credited to Him in full, and His righteousness has been credited to us in full. So that we are received by God the Father in Christ as if we were Him. God looks at you as if you were Jesus. That's how He looks at you. That's how much He loves you, because you are in Christ. And that's the only way you can come to Him. Even so, even though we have now seen many of the things that Daniel could have never imagined seeing, we too must look ahead. God will stretch our imaginations as well. Because God has prepared an inheritance for us the likes of which we have never seen. And we know it is secure. And we know we are secure in His grip because Jesus died for our sins and He rose from the grave to make us right with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that it is true, and we thank You that it is so good. Lord, um, Jesus, we thank You for Your life for us. We thank You for Your death in our place. We believe that it took all of our sins, that You took all of our sins on the cross, and that You left them in the grave and that they've been put to an end, and we believe that you're alive, and that you're all is well in heaven, and that you rule and reign from there even now. Lord, help us to rest in the provisions that you've made. We believe you. Help our unbelief. And help us to apply these things into the dark crevices of our lives where there is sin that is, for some of us, hidden. Bring it to the light. Kill it. And, and lather your grace all over it. For those that are grieving, where we are facing death, might we rejoice in the hope of eternal life. And might we have, be given boldness to share this hope with the world. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.
If you want to get a seat, you might want to go to church.